let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Um, hello everybody, my name is Marcella and together with Valeria we'll be talking today to Jeremy. You've probably already been introduced to Jeremy Berman in our previous podcasts. Today we'll be talking about cultural evolution in the context of our Controversies in Psychology course. To make a small introduction to the topic, cultural evolution is an evolutionary theory of social change that is nowadays the basis for a great deal of psychological research. Historically, there have been a number of approaches to the study of cultural evolution that differ in the conceptualization uh, of the process, its assumptions, and also the methods used to study it. Um, my first question then to Jeremy would be to describe in a very concise manner the two different approaches used to study cultural evolution. In class, we talked about the use of Darwin and the influence of biological meta-theories on, on thinking about cultural evolution. So really, I would think there are three big differences. There's the Darwinian approaches. There are neo-Darwinian approaches, meaning the blend of Darwin and Mendel, so particulate inheritance type approaches, and, and newer things. And I, actually, sorry, there's, there are pre-Darwinian approaches too. So Herbert Spencer, although he is um, a contemporary of Darwin's, his theories of cultural evolution can be thought of in many respects as pre-Darwinian. So there are the four types. There's pre-Darwinian, Darwinian, neo-Darwinian, and, and the new thing. So in, in, in the abstract, we can refer to two categories, namely uh, old and new. And the new ones are still developing, and they're very exciting. Uh, and the old ones are primarily about particulate inheritance, which is the Mendelian approach, and then that usually means memes. When referring to memes, because it, it's a very controversial, at least to me, uh, topic, because memes have been interpreted differently, sometimes misinterpreted, is there a way in which we can use memes uh, in the study of cultural evolution? Yeah, I, that's, I think it's a good way of putting it. How do we use memes? How do we, how do we take memes as a method that we then remember we're using a method and approach the problem with that method. And, and this is, in my interpretation anyway, this is what Daniel Dennett has been doing. So his, uh, he has several books, Consciousness Explained, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. I think Dennett is the most careful, and I think that because his use of memes is, is a method. So he has famously an approach that he calls the intentional stance, where you um, you basically play pretend. You say, let us let us play pretend. Let us believe that the thing that we're talking about has has its own motives, has its own reasons for doing things, and and if we do that, then we can make predictions about how it's going to behave. If we adopt that stance in thinking about memes, then we play pretend as if there were something 
like the thing that Dawkins talks about in The Selfish Gene, this thing that jumps from brain to brain, which he called a meme because he was trying to develop an argument about how replicators drive evolution. So Dennett takes that notion and says, if we do that, if we use this idea as a method, then we can naturalize the study of cultural evolution. And we can naturalize the study of cultural change and social change and use scientific approaches to, to something that some critics have, say, have said hasn't been especially scientific. And, and this then produces all sorts of interesting consequences, that some of which are testable, some of which aren't. But as a philosophical program, the use of that method lays out a structure that is scientific. If you forget that you're using a method, then the consequence is not scientific. It, it feels scientific, it looks scientific, but you, you end up with something that has a lot more storytelling and a lot more... If you, if, if you imagine such and such, then it follows that. But, but there's, there's nothing necessary about the if you imagine. Are you talking specifically about the interpretations of memes as real objects? Yeah. But I, you're, you're right, it's really important. If we believe that memes are like genes, genes, it's, it's, it's uncontroversial to say that there is something uh, that we call a gene. Exactly what it is is, is, a, is something that's studied, but it's not controversial to say there is a gene. It is certainly controversial to say with Darwin that there is a gemule. We don't have gemules anymore, but it's not a problem to talk about genes. So if you accept the genetic meta theory, if you accept that um, it is a useful scientific thing to do to talk about inheritance in this way, and in biology, it's certainly useful to talk about inheritance in that way. You end up with population genetics. You end up with the whole way of making sense of, bi of, of biology. So that's great. But that's when things really go wrong, that if you, if you adopt this particulate meta-theory, and if you think that that's what matters for evolution, then you end up looking for particles of culture that you think are real in the same way that genes are real. That, you know, Franklin and Watson and Crick have these photos, the X-ray crystallography of DNA. No one is ever going to have a photo of a meme, even though, in principle, that's a thing that neuroscientists should eventually be able to do. Maybe if you have a, a powerful enough scanner. Maybe, notionally, it could be possible but the premise is wrong. That there isn't anything that jumps from brain to brain in the way that, that um, Dawkins talks about memes from the perspective of his replicator's argument. The treatment of a meme as if it were identical to a gene leads you down a bad path. It's, it's, it's a useful path. You ask all sorts of interesting questions and you can look at uh, uh, cultural movements from that perspective. But in the end, if you forget that what you're doing is a method, then you continue believing that it's a real meme, and you go then you, you go looking for it, and you can't find it. Doesn't human brains don't work that way, and learning doesn't work that way. An important conclusion to that thought is that that's not just about memes. We have to do that every time we use a method. That that any time you do anything, sure you find something, and that's it's great that you find something. But if you had looked in a different way, you would find something, perhaps quite different. Uh, and so these. Um, or these articles that report multiple studies in the same article. And the approach then is, is about converging evidence. 
that if, if you look at this same thing that we're talking about from two or three or four perspectives, we keep finding the same object. And therefore, irrespective of whether we have p-value problems, because we've looked at it using these different tools from multiple perspectives, then uh, we still find the same object. I might be going off track here, but just for a second. So you mentioned at some point that um, neuroimaging studies might, in the very distant future, localize memes in the brain. How how is that possible? Considering the memes, I um, personally I don't see memes as existing in space. Yep, they don't. It's a tool. It's a tool for thought. That if you if you adopt, as I said, if you adopt memes as a method, then you can then you can proceed. Um, but if you forget that they're a method, then then it's uh, it follows naturally as a consequence that we should want to find it in the brain. And you never will. There will be uh, um, changes in, in glucose consumption patterns, uh, but that isn't evidence of memes. Um, you can play pretend and say, we continue to use the method of memes, and so these different activations are evidence of the impact of the meme, but there is no meme there. And it's, it's not about what you have discovered is not a meme in the brain. What, you have, what instead has happened is that you have been led by your method to an investigation, and that investigation may produce useful results, but you don't then discover a meme. In principle, it's not a thing that can exist. To go back to what you said about methodology, it has implications on the way you regard the theory and you regard cu cultural evolution in general. Uh, there is a tendency to use methodology from the natural sciences to the study of cultural evolution. Could you go some more in the implications of transferring these methods to cultural evolution study? Yeah, I think this is part of the, this trend toward using methods from the natural sciences. Is, is it's happening all over the place, and, and it's part of the, the um, you can, well, you can see it from a couple of different perspectives. One, the natural sciences have more power than the social sciences, so it's it's a, a, an indigenization of of tools from the more powerful colonizer, and that's a useful tool. I've used that in history writing, and it, it provides interesting um, insights. Uh, another. A more scientific perspective would be to say, scientific and rather than scientific, would be to say, um, natural science is where the science is, and social science is not where the science is. And so, if you want to have a social science, then then you adopt the scientific tools. It, it just follows; it's a natural consequence of however you think about these categories. So, in that sense, uh, we want social science to be scientific. And if the only way to do that is to emulate the natural sciences, the hard sciences, then we're going to be looking for, for sources that can do that. And, and physics traditionally has been a big source for psychology, which makes complete sense because physics uh, was the top of the hierarchy in the natural sciences. Biology is taking over in the hierarchy. The peak moment for physics is probably the Manhattan Project in, in the U.S. and the, the, the attempt for the atomic bomb. That, that project to build the atomic bomb was important because it organized the whole discipline and it, and it made uh, uh, money available and it made, it made careers possible. It massively increased the size of physics. Um, and the same thing happened with, has happened with biology. So biology is taking over from physics as the queen of the sciences, uh, especially with the Human Genome Project. And so we, 
uh, we started by importing methods primarily from physics, and then we started importing methods primarily from biology. And that, and, and I think meme theory and cultural evolution more generally reflects those importations. Being open-minded about the importation of methods reminds us that there are more ways to do a thing. And what else do you have that you that I didn't um, do? And the last, the last one was about um, um, the unified theory of cultural evolution. If what, what does right. it entail, and Where what does it bring? Going. Yeah. 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 Um, I would like for there to be a unified cultural evolutionary theory that psychologists contribute to, and I think, uh, I think that's becoming more possible. I think that cultural evolution, because we aren't so connected, we aren't so attached anymore to um, the, the Darwinian modern synthesis of Darwin and Mendel, the neo-Darwinian synthesis, I think it's possible for non-biologists to talk about evolution. So um, the grand unified theory of cultural evolution will be a, uh, a collaboration between biologists and psychologists and presumably epistemologists and philosophers who are interested in knowledge. Okay, I'm not sure I can imagine a, a, a unified theory of cultural evolution considering that all the psychological dispositions that cultures have, or there's so many local structures that I don't just see how they would be accounted for in, in a grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's a, a problem for theorizing. When you make a theory, you are trying to explain a lot, um, but you're also trying to explain a lot with a little. So you want a simple theory, you want it to be parsimonious, you want it to be powerful. And if we could imagine very easily what that theory would look like, then you know there isn't a Nobel Prize in psychology, but there is the Grommeyer Prize. And, and uh, being able to do that and to explain it in a clear way and, and articulate the power of a thing simply is, is very difficult. From the perspective of, um, uh, of theory making, using logical tools that impart a necessity, a sense of it must be in a certain way because the, the rules of logic that we agree to force it, in a sense, to be um, one way rather than another way. I think that's extremely powerful for theory making. Certainly better than sitting on a couch and saying, let us imagine that, such and such. Um, but, you know, you've got to explain it and you've got to spend years and years and years working on something and then only have, you know, a few thousand words to explain it. People who are interested in cultural evolution need to need to also be interested in history because history is where the where the evidence comes from. And I've written a lot about history, um, and I've written about history as a method. How can we trust evidence, um, or or rather, how can we how can we turn traces that we find into evidence, evidence of something, an evidence that's trustworthy? Especially, and then I think these are sorts of questions and thinking are more important in light of what Martin talked about in his interview. Uh, where there's a real recognition that um, we need to be thinking more carefully about the tools that we use. If, if you want to be more sure that the object that you're looking at actually is there and not a, a function of the method that you're using, then you use lots of different methods that are directed toward that same object. And if you keep finding the same or similar things, uh, then it's probably real. But if you uh, and this isn't a replication thing. This is a this is a totally different issue. But if you can, I, I don't I don't know whether it would be worth thinking about it as a as a kind of replication, finding the same kind of thing by totally different means. That would be 
that would be convincing, you know, when we're we're now inferring the existence of of our discoveries uh, by virtue of their improbability. And if it's if you find something improbably using one method, then a, a replication is to find it again using the same method. But if you find it again using a different method, that's extremely improbable. It's improbable twice, um, and not just twice because you've done it twice, but improbable twice because you're, you, you're, you've come at it a different way. And, and I think we can think about the history of biology in that way. Darwin didn't have access to the notion of genes when he was writing about evolution, and Mendel did have access to genes and or to you know constructing the theory of genes, and and demonstrating with his experiments in the garden with pea plants and flowers and things. Uh, and came to very similar conclusions. Um, once it was dis- once DNA was discovered, um, different ways of thinking about the same kind of topics, and population genetics emerges. Um, so these are, strictly speaking, very different ways of studying the same kind of topic. What do you think would be the influence on society uh, of of a unified theory of cultural evolution? Well, in the, we don't, I, I mean, uh, I don't have to make things up. Um, we, I can point to the excitement around memes in the 80s, and then we can, we can infer from, from our history. In, the, in newspapers, including in the, in the Financial Times, uh, there was a lot of discussion about what would happen if memes were real. Uh, and uh, a science of advertising, a science of public manipulation would be possible then also we would need to learn how to defend ourselves against being manipulated. Um, and, you know, I think these things are all useful <laughs> to do anyway. To, we know that it's possible to manipulate people. But to have a single theory that was connected to uh, our understanding about the evolution of life, to have one theory that spanned from the evolution of life all the way through to how ideas change and how culture moves, and have just one thing that explains it all, That would be fantastic. That's why this is a cool topic for the Controversies in Psychology course. There are controversial aspects related to cultural evolution, like the religious stuff that Richard Dawkins talks about. But what's even more interesting and potentially more controversial are the things that haven't happened yet. The things that our own people, by which I mean psychologists, but also psychologists from Ruch, can make those contributions and we can cause the controversies in a sense by taking back some of the territory that's been colonized by biologists and take that back for psychologists because it's psychology. Jeremy, thank you very much for the discussion. It was a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is mine. This podcast was a production of MindWise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.